Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to City Beautiful Church. Go ahead and take your seats. We've got a couple, a couple extra ones here and there. Excellent. Welcome, everybody. Uh, it's good to see all of your shiny, happy faces today. Um, we are in a series currently called Responding to the Invitation of God. Uh, for those of you that are maybe just kind of joining us, maybe this is your first Sunday, or you've been just a couple Sundays, uh, last fall the Lord gave us this vision uh, together with one heart and mind drawing closer to God. Uh, when you came in, you maybe saw we have these nine icons on the wall, and those are our nine church values. And our three uh, primary theological values are, anybody, what's the first one? Intimacy with God. And then identity in Christ, and then purpose is a spirit-led church, okay? That's right. And it's Trinitarian. You know I'm going to love me some Trinity. Um, so this year, we were really focusing on what does it mean to actually produce intimacy with God? It's not, we don't come here just to learn about the Bible and, and, and some interesting facts about the first century in Judea, although you will learn some interesting facts about first century Judea today, and I'm going to teach you some Greek words, so we're going to get all of that in there. Our primary purpose in life is to produce intimacy with God. And so our first series of the year was, well, what is God like? Let's learn about the heartbeat of God. What is he, what is he really like? If we're going to engage him, who are, who are we seeking after? And the second series was listening to the voice of God. So for three months, we just focused on that. How does God speak to us? And how are we each uniquely crafted to hear his voice? And then what are the practical ways in which we can learn to position ourselves to hear? And now we're in this series called Responding to the Invitation of God, which is to say, now now that we have learned to hear him, what do we do with that? There's a tremendous power and responsibility in being a group of people pursuing the heart of God, learning how to listen to him, and then respond to be the people that he's calling us to be in the world. And that's what we're really going to be continuing on with uh, this week. Last week, we talked um, about how our response to God puts Jesus more and more at the center of our reality. That all of us need to be delivered from this idea of the interventionist God, which means space-time is just kind of moving on, ambling through history, and every once in a while God might show up and make a cameo and stir something up or teach us something cool about quantum mechanics, and then he goes back to his mountain. But really, the, the, the Jewish story, the Christian story, is that God has been at the center of this thing the whole time, and it's up to you and I to learn how to wake up to the reality of God that is present in all things. And so we want to continue on uh, today with this. God is inviting us to change the way we think and pledge allegiance to Jesus as our king. God is inviting us to change the way that we think and he's inviting us to pledge allegiance to Jesus as our king. When we begin on that journey of putting God more and more at the center of our reality, then it's going to beg something of us in our response of obedience. Now, uh, your Middle Eastern history in the first century. Here we go. I hope you're all taking notes. Um, so in, uh, in the first century, less than a generation after Jesus, uh, there was an aristocratic Jewish man named Flavius Josephus. Um, he was a wealthy man. He lived up in uh, Galilee. 
He's a very well-known historian. He recorded a lot of what's going on in the Middle East in that time. And in fact, a lot of the information we have about what Judea was like under Roman occupation comes from Josephus. And he's actually um, the only reference point outside of the Bible that we have that Jesus of Nazareth was a real person, that he wrote about this revolution that came out of Galilee, Jesus of Nazareth, kind of this rebellious rabbi who was eventually executed uh, by the Roman government on behalf of the Sanhedrin um, and the, uh, the Jewish lawgivers. And so Josephus, uh, in this time, kind of in the 1960s, a very tumultuous uh, point of history in the Middle East. I know that's a, kind of a hard stretch to imagine, but there was a time when Israel was a hotly contested territory. And uh, so what happens in the 1960s is that there's actually a revolution. So Rome is kind of inhabiting the known world. They're conquering people. Most people kind of go along with it. But these Jewish people, they're, they're, they do not seem to want to pledge allegiance to Caesar. And so there's a rebellion that kind of wells up in the 1960s. And they kind of start to form militias. They start to form their military to fight against Rome to reclaim their country. And, and Josephus, as an aristocrat, was automatically put into the place of being uh, an officer in the Jewish military. Now, he wrote his own autobiography, which if you're going to write your own autobiography, it's probably best that you do it. Um, but he did. Sorry, I'm going too fast for you. Let me slow down a little bit. <laughs> but there's a couple fascinating little moments from Josephus's autobiography that I just want to read to you very briefly. So he is, uh, he's Jewish in perspective, but he's Greek in the language that he uses. Um, so, first of all, there's this revolt against Rome. He's put in place to be an officer. And over time, Josephus begins to believe that whatever the Jewish rebellion is planning on doing is not going to go well. He's kind of seeing the stakes of if, if Israel kind of goes up against Rome, this is not going to turn out the way that everybody hopes. And in fact, as an aristocrat, it's in his best interests that things don't change too much anyway. And so... This is something that he writes in his autobiography. He says, I perceived that there was a great many people very much elevated in hopes of a revolt. I therefore endeavored to put a stop to these tumultuous persons and persuaded them to change their minds. I desired them not to bring on the dangers of the most terrible mischiefs upon their country, upon their families, and upon themselves. And so Josephus is kind of begging the Jewish military to change their minds. The Greek term is metanoia, which means to change your mind. And it literally means change your brain. Change the way that you're thinking this is going to go because it's not going to turn out the way that you hoped. And then later on in his autobiography, he finds out that there's another Jewish guerrilla leader who is planning on assassinating Josephus because he's kind of getting in the mix of their political agenda. And so Josephus goes to approach this guy to convince him that his agenda is also wrong. He says, I told him that I was not ignorant of the plot which he had contrived against me. I would nevertheless condone his actions if he would show repentance and prove his loyalty to me. All this he promised. I begged him to show repentance, to change the way he's thinking, and to prove his loyalty to me. And in the Greek, we could just as easily translate that as I asked him to repent and to believe in me. I asked him to change the way that he's thinking this is going to go and to get behind my agenda and how I'm trying to lead this thing. And so it's fascinating that in the first century, we have this phrase, repent and believe, is already part of the common lexicon. 
People are speaking in this way, and it gives us this amazing starting point for a better understanding of what happens when Jesus goes out and preaches the good news of the kingdom, and he's using that language of repent and believe in me. Change the way that you're thinking this is going to go, and get behind my agenda, because your current path is going to lead you into destruction. So we're going to pray, and we're going to dive deeper into the words of Jesus. So Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you are here that you are with us, that you are at the center of reality. God, that every uh, nuon, gluon, quark, lepton, every subatomic particle that we exist from and that we exist in is held together by your word, your logos, that you are in the midst of us. You are closer to us than our own breath. In you, we live and move and have our being. But God, we know that the response that you're desiring from us is that we learn how to wake up more and more to the reality of your constant presence to us and that you want to speak and guide us into a new way, not only of being human beings, but a new way of reforming this world, of rescuing this world so that it comes back into accord with what you desire for it to be. So Lord, speak to us today. We don't want to leave this place without having encountered you and being transformed by how we see you and how we see ourselves, how we see the world. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we need to begin with this phrase, gospel. We use this, this is another you know, very core Christian term, gospel, gospel, gospel. It means good news. And I think it's important that we have the proper lens to understand the word gospel as we're seeking what does it mean when Jesus goes out and begins to preach, repent and believe. The gospel is not good advice on how to live a better life. The gospel is a declaration followed by an invitation. And I think many of us have grown up in church cultures where the word gospel has been kind of demoted to something that's a little bit more manageable. Because the declaration of who God is and what he's doing in the world is a little bit too intimidating. It's not easily accessible. So if we make it about trying to give people good advice on how to live better lives using Bible as our point of reference, then that's the best that we can hope for. And this is unfortunate because what it does is it plays more and more into a me-centered culture. And we've seen kind of a steady devolution of, of preaching the gospel throughout the past century where the church began to believe these, these, uh, these stories, these philosophies coming from the external society and saying we need to conform our version of the gospel to make it more applicable to people. I think one of the tragic, unfortunate connotations of the Protestant movement is that everything became about being useful. Beauty isn't particularly useful, but telling me how to balance my checkbook, that's useful. And so I'll go to church, and I'll hear some Bible stories, I'll learn how to balance my checkbook, and that's the gospel. And unfortunately, it put us more and more at the center. So when we even come to Scripture, when we come to Jesus, the questions that we're asking aren't even necessarily the right questions. Maybe for some of us, it started with, what, what must I do to be saved? But then secondly, it becomes, what must I do in order to live a better life? And the problem with those kinds of questions when it's about me-centered, when it's about me looking for advice, is that most of the Bible is rather useless. The stories are confusing. Uh, they don't seem to be particularly applicable. And we start to nitpick the scriptures in order to answer the questions that we were never intended uh, to be answering in the first place. So oftentimes people ask me, what is the gospel? What's the simple gospel? And I'm like, oh, the simple gospel. 
Okay, the simple gospel. What is the simple gospel? Well, let's look at one of the gospels. The first line in the first gospel, Mark says this. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel. The good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Already here we see the gospel is about to be a declaration of something. That the writers are saying, here's the story. Here's what's happening. Here is how God has chosen to move in time and space. And we move on. Well, good news about what? Jesus, the Messiah. The word Messiah, sometimes also translated Christ, means the anointed one. It's kingly language. It's royal language. And Mark also tacks on the Son of God, another phrase that kind of elevates the person of Jesus to be more than a mere man. Because in the first century, the Son of God, somebody had already reserved that title. Somebody also had everybody call him that. His name was Caesar. And if you even looked on the coins, it said, you know, Caesar, the Son of God. And so what Mark is doing is making a declaration right here in the beginning of the gospel. He's saying, no, this is good news. This is a dramatic announcement of who God is and what he's doing through the anointed one, his king, Jesus, who is the son of God. Because the little thing is Jesus is the son of God and Caesar is not. Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. And as we continue on in the Gospel of Mark, just in that first chapter, when we first engage with Jesus, he goes to be baptized by his cousin John uh, down at the river. And, it's, and, and they have this beautiful engagement where it's kind of his inauguration as king. And then we find this in Mark 1, 14 and 15. After John was put in prison for kind of speaking up against the status quo of the day, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. There again it is, the story, the Gospel of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And I love that phrase, that the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. In our modern lexicon, we might say, change the way that you think. Because the reality, the new reality of what God is doing is so close that you can practically touch it. What does it mean the time has come? You see, if you know the story of the Old Testament, this is why it matters. This is why we need the Old Testament. It tells a story of a people group that God has rescued out of slavery, has given a new identity, and has anointed them as priests or as ambassadors to go out and to preach the good news of the one true God to all of the Gentile nations to draw all people back to the reality of Yahweh. But because of their rebellion and their uh, disinterest in following Yahweh and the ways that he's trying to craft them as a people, they find themselves time and again in exile. That some other competing nation comes in and takes over and takes them away from their homeland, makes them slaves, makes them work for them, and they kind of reintroduce to that abusive mentality that they found when they lived in Egypt. And towards the end of the history books, we find that is the, the Jewish people in exile in Babylon are given permission to come back to Israel, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city. But there was this general sentiment when they came back that God was not there. They rebuilt the temple, they rebuilt his house, but the presence of God still hadn't come back. And so for 400 years, um, the Jewish people were kind of living in this understanding that even though we're physically home, we're still in a spiritual exile. We're waiting for God, our King, to come back to us. 
to give us back our identity and to lead us in a new way. And so the first century was electric with this anticipation. When is God going to come? When is God going to do what he promised he was going to do in delivering us, in giving us a king, in giving us back our own land? Because in the first century, there was another empire. There was more oppression. And so when Jesus says, the time has come, that's what he's saying. You've been waiting for the the, the God revolution to begin, and here it is. The kingdom of God is on a roll. The new reality of God and what he wants to do in and through you is right here. You can touch it. The exile is over. His new reality is rushing in. And when we begin to understand that context then, and we see this word repent, we begin to understand repentance is not a private religion of feeling bad. Oftentimes this is what we're taught about repentance. It means you need to go to church and you need to feel really bad for all the things that you did and then you need to tell God, gosh, I'm really sorry, I'll try again better next week and we'll just kind of check in with each other and see how we're doing. See, we've relegated, again, because we're so me-centered, we've believed in a personal religion that it's just about me and my relationship with God and it's all based on how I feel. So I have to go to church in order to feel bad and then I say, oh, I'm terribly sorry. Let's give it again another go tomorrow and that's basically what repentance is. But when we understand in its proper context, when Jesus is saying repent, he's saying get on board with the new revolution of what God is doing There's a new agenda. He has a new plan for us. Not just for us as the Jewish people, but a different direction for humanity at large. That I'm inviting all of you to get back on board with God's agenda and to become who God has called you to be. The royal priesthood. The ambassadors. The people who stand in the gap between God's world and this world and see it rescued and redeemed. Repentance is about revolution. It's about a dramatic change of everything that we know and hold dear. So Jesus says, repent and believe in me. So if repentance is the changing the way you think, what does it mean to believe? Or what do we mean by the word faith? I think this is also something that has been co-opted, that has been made small, and it's just been made about our personal piety and our personal perspective on life. But faith in Jesus means pledging allegiance to him as our king and participating in his new world. Faith in Jesus means pledging allegiance to him. The Greek word for faith is pistis, and the word for believe is pistio. They kind of come from the same root, but they're translated very similarly into English. And a lot of times we've grown up understanding faith in a couple different ways that I want to just suss out for a moment. Number one, faith is not the opposite of evidence, okay? Sometimes we've believed that. Faith is the opposite of evidence. So if science is saying this thing or whatever it might be, well, I'm a faithful person, so I have to reject evidence and I have to believe in this way. And so sometimes when we read the Bible, we're looking for the words faith, and we're just, we're just putting whatever it's saying in opposition to what everything else around us is saying. But that's not faith. 
Because it, it doesn't do anything to us. It doesn't do anything to, to who we are or to where we're going or where we're following. It becomes about this intellectual battle between faith and reason or between faith and science. We've made these false dichotomies where we're constantly going back and forth and we're debating the silliest things that have very little to do with following Jesus. Let me put more of a point on it. Whether or not you believe the earth was created in six literal days has nothing to do with whether or not you are a follower of Jesus, right? But we've, we've, we miss that. We think it's about us having the right interpretation of things and stuff. And if we can explain it right, and if we can reject all the other stuff, then we're being faithful. And that kind of leads to the second thing that faith is not. Faith is not a leap in the dark, this kind of comes from Soren Kierkegaard, this idea of the leap of faith. How many of you are big fans of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, right? Unbelievable. <laughs> right? For my money, it's the best one. Although the last one did have aliens in it, so it gets major points. But, you know, if you remember in Indiana Jones, he has to take the leap of faith from the lion's head, and he can't see what's out in front of him, and he just does this, and he steps out, and he's on this bridge, Right? It's actually a poor translation of what Kierkegaard is saying. He's like the leap from faith. But something has told us that faith is when you leave behind everything that you know and you just jump out into the dark blindly. And the problem with that is that it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you were ever meant to jump in the first place. You see, some of us believe that there's the conventional wisdom, the things that make sense, common sense, and then there's the things that God's going to call you to do, right? Right? So whatever the things make sense, God's just calling you to do the opposite. And that's really unfortunate. Because as we looked in listening to the voice of God, that sometimes the things that God speaks to us are the most conventional things. They make sense. Because faith transcends this idea of conformity or standing apart. Faith is about us learning how to follow God. And sometimes people take leaps into the dark without God ever asking them to do that in the first place. Number three, faith does not mean wishful thinking. How many of you had this? You're going through something real hard in life and someone says, well, brother, you just got to have faith. You know? You just believed. You just got to have faith. Cue George Michael. And this is wishful thinking. Or there's other variations. Someone come along and go, hey, don't worry. Stop. Would you stop worrying? It's all good. It's fine. And what that does is it diminishes the human experience. It takes our very legitimate pain and struggle and it explains it away. Sometimes we see other variations of this like in the charismatic world where you know, something happens, someone doesn't get healed or whatever, and we're like, okay, who didn't have enough faith? Somebody, is it the person that prayed or is it the person that's being prayed for? Like we've got to figure out the proper math equation to figure out where the lack of faith is so that we can kind of re-up like Mario, you know, that's all grown up in the video game era and it's like, bling, there's more faith, point three, like plus three. And we believe that faith is this kind of wishful thinking. If I just clench my eyes tight and hold my fist and go, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, then maybe that's the thing that's going to give me that next level of faith but we ignore the reality of what it means to be a human in God's world. Faith does also not mean passive trust. Faith doesn't mean that you just sit back and just wait for God to do something. Sometimes when we say that we have faith, what we're saying is, I'm actually kind of exempt 
from doing stuff, right? Like if you really had faith, you wouldn't work hard. You would just trust on God to provide all your needs. It's like that, I love that, uh, that joke, a man's you know, trapped on a desert island and he's praying. He's like, Lord, come and please deliver me. I just believe in you. I have so much faith. And a, and a, and a boat comes by. And they call out to him, hey, buddy, are you okay? And he picked up and he says, no, it's fine. God's going to deliver me. God, I just have faith that God's going to deliver me. And they go, okay. And they go on. And a few days later, he's continuing to pray. And he's like, God, I just, I have the faith that you're going to come through, that you're going to deliver me. And all of a sudden, a helicopter comes over, overhead. And they yell down, hey, buddy, are you okay? Like, do you, need, do you need rescue? He says, no, 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 it's okay. God's going to deliver me. He's going to send down his angels and he's going to deliver me. I just have the faith. He's like, okay. And they go on. And before long, the guy dies on the island. And he's up in heaven. He passes through the pearly gates and he's having a conference with God. He says, God, I had the faith. Why didn't you deliver me? Why didn't you show up? He said, I sent a boat and a helicopter. What else did you want? We have this idea that faith, this should be more, eh, whatever. Sometimes church jokes are the worst, you know? It demonstrates the point. That's what I'm saying. Sometimes we think faith is just passive trust. I just have faith. And I think we've internalized that in the Protestant world because we say, oh, it's about faith, not works. So if you do stuff, then that means you think it's about your own effort to be saved. And I think that's tragic. And then finally, faith is not agreement with intellectual statements. We don't get, you know, a statement of belief and go, do I believe Jesus is the Son of God? Yep. Do I believe he's born of Virgin Mary? Uh-huh. You know, you don't get to the pearly gates and St. Peter's like, okay, you're about to get in, but there's a 375-point multiple-choice questionnaire. If you answer all this right, then you're getting into heaven. And so faith really becomes about, are you studying good enough? You know? Are you getting into the Greek and the Hebrew and all of that? And can you answer all the questions right? And then you have faith. Faith is not any of those things. It's more dynamic, it's more honest, it's more engaging, it asks more of you than some of those ideas of what we've internalized that faith means. There's a um, theologian working today, his name's Matthew Bates, and he wrote a book called Salvation by Allegiance Alone. And his whole premise is that whenever we read the word faith, the best word that we can use is the word allegiance because it really wraps up in a neat bundle what we're actually being invited to. He says, allegiance is the best term because it avoids unhelpful English language associations that have become attached to faith and belief, as well as limitations on the trust idea. And at the same time, it captures what is most vital for salvation, Mental assent, sworn fidelity, and embodied loyalty. I love those three phrases because I think it really wraps up what we mean by faith. It does mean mental assent. It means that we, ag- we agree with the tenets of the faith, that we believe that Jesus is who he said he is. But there's also a sworn fidelity that, you know, I like that idea of the word fidelity that's more like faithfulness. Because that speaks to a commitment, a one-time commitment, but also an ongoing commitment and journey, an embodied loyalty. Oh, what a great phrase, embodied loyalty. What does that mean? That means that everything I am, my mind, my heart, my body, and my soul are all committed to following Jesus. When we've relegated Jesus to, well, at the end of the day, he just wants your heart. No, he doesn't. He wants every bit of you. 
This is kind of what we were unpacking last week. We say, well, here's the things that God has opinions about, and they're spiritual things. And then there's all these physical things about who you are and how you live your life and how the world is. And he didn't really have much to, 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 to say about that. But embodied loyalty says, no, he desires every part of you. This centered act of allegiance to him to go where he will lead you. And when we believe faith is allegiance, it moves us away from this argument of are we justified by faith being, do you just agree with all of these statements? It moves us away from is it faith or is it works? Because we say, well, yeah, it's all of it. It's about us working out our salvation. It's about us saying what we believe and how we live gradually over time become the same thing. When we were talking about this on Thursday, Daniel made this, this really great observation. He's so wise. Take the man out for a cup of coffee. He said, you know, when we talk about faith as like allegiance, it almost sounds like covenant marriage. I said, well, yeah, that's why God gave us marriage in the first place, right? That we would learn practically what faith really looks like. You don't get to your wedding day and go, I follow, I, you know, I kind of like, I assent to all of the following facts about you, wife, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I agree, all of those things are real, roll it up. Okay, I just have faith that this marriage is going to work. <laughs> That'd be insane! That would be insane. What is marriage? I don't know, I'm not married, but I can make some guesses. It's coming to someone and saying, I don't know who you are. And I don't even know who I am half of the time, but I'm willing to stick it out and commit to you that I'm going to discover over time who you are. And that my presence in your life will change you. And your presence in my life will change me. And I'm committing to the journey itself with everything that I am. And I think that covenant marriage idea is a beautiful analogy for what faithfulness really means to us in pledging allegiance to Jesus. Because the reality is that we worship a two-handed Jesus. That we worship a Jesus who in one hand holds radical inclusivity. Radical inclusivity. That when it says he will draw all men unto himself, he means all men and women. Another biblical translation. Nobody is exempt Nobody is so far out there. Nobody is so evil or messed up that Jesus does not look them in the face and say, I want you. I want you to come to me. It is radical inclusivity. And who are we to bar people from coming to Jesus because they do not fit our expectations of who's in and who's out, who he wants and who he doesn't? But the other hand of radical inclusivity is radical allegiance. That Jesus invites us to him to follow him, but to begin to live not according to our own agendas, not according to the agendas of the world, but to live according to his agenda. And I think that's just as hard for us to accept as radical inclusivity. Who's in? Everybody who answers the call. Who stays? Everybody who's willing to give over their agendas time and again to follow Jesus. And are these not the two halves of true love? That when you are truly in love, you are completely accepted for who you are. And there is a complete expectation that you will be transformed. If you are accepted and you do not change, it is not love. If the expectation is for you to change before you're accepted, that is not love. And this is what Jesus invites us to. You can see he already begins to transcend all of our categories of how we think faith 
is supposed to work. And we see this all over scripture when we begin to look at faith or belief as allegiance to Jesus, as embodied loyalty to him. And this, I just want to give you an example. This is from Romans 10. And I'm actually reading from uh, the New Testament for Everyone translation. Paul is having this conversation about how does Israel fit in with God's plan for saving the whole world. And he's speaking about the kind of the first covenant that comes through Moses and then the second covenant that comes through Christ as a fulfillment and an addition. Moses writes, you see, about the covenant membership. This is how he translates righteousness. Righteousness does not mean that you're just doing all the right things. It means covenant membership in God's family. So Moses writes about the covenant membership in God's family defined by the law, that the person who performs the law's commands shall live in them. But the faith-based covenant membership, the covenant that we have through Jesus, puts it like this. Don't say in your heart, who shall go up to heaven? In other words, to bring the Messiah down. Or who shall go down to the depths? In other words, to bring the Messiah up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we proclaim. Because if you profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And what do we, what do we see that even in Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is speaking of this idea that it's out of, out of the heart comes our words and our actions. So it's this embodied loyalty to him. Why? Because the way to covenant membership is by believing with the heart. And the way to salvation is by professing with the mouth. Thought, word, deed, all of these things meet themselves in faith. The Bible says, you see, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, since the same Lord is Lord of all and is rich towards all who come upon him. What does he mean by that? He's saying all of your little tribalistic mentalities of who's in and who's out and who's favored and who's not, none of that matters anymore because there's a deeper through line. There's a deeper connectivity among the people of God. And it's everyone who calls upon him as Lord. All who call upon the name of the Lord, you see, will be saved. Now, even there, when we talk about salvation, what Paul is saying, what Jesus is saying is not, you're going to get to go to heaven when you die, although that is part of the salvation message. But salvation means that you recognize Jesus is Lord, means Jesus is enthroned in heaven now, and he's ushering in new creation, and you get to be part of that project of God to see it come to its fulfillment. The new heavens, the new earth, the new reality that what, when Jesus is king. You see, Jesus is not the means for the gospel. If we believe it's about me-centered things, then Jesus becomes a means to a much deeper end, that I want to go to heaven when I die. Jesus is the point of the gospel. When we believe it's about good advice, we come to Jesus for advice. When we believe it's a declaration about who God has put in charge and what his new world looks like, we begin to listen to Jesus. It's not about asking, how do I get to heaven? It's about asking, what does all of this look like when God is king? And so how do repent and believe challenge our faith in the modern era? Well, we believe that that declaration is a story first and foremost the story of how God becomes king. 
And I think this challenges a lot of our modern assumptions about what faith and religion are supposed to be. That the story won't let you say, Jesus is Lord. But that's just my personal opinion. You cannot say that if you're reading the story accurately. Because we've internalized this relativistic idea that, well, all religions and philosophies are basically same paths up the same mountain. And that's human-centered religion. When we believe that faith and religion and whatnot is basically about how do you become a good person? Then you see all of the different options that you have and you just choose the one that feels right to you. Again, another ugly byproduct of the enlightenment as we looked at last week. The problem with that is that Jesus made these claims about himself. His followers reiterated those claims about who he was as God's Messiah, Christ, anointed one, as God's king, as the son of God, as God incarnate. Jesus was very upfront about who he really is. Jesus didn't claim to be a good teacher or a good advice giver. Yet we treat him that way. Do you realize it's not the words of Jesus that save us, it's the actions of Jesus. And if we just make it about Jesus' words, we do not believe that he is who he says he really is. And where do we see this? One of the great thinkers of the Enlightenment was one of our own presidents, Thomas Jefferson. And you can actually go to Washington, D.C., and you can see what's called Jefferson's Bible. Is anybody familiar with this? You've seen it? Okay, what Jefferson's Bible means is Thomas Jefferson took the four Gospels. He said, these four Gospels are very inconvenient. They don't seem to line up in all these particular ways. And there's the problem of all of these weird things that Jesus says about himself and all these weird things that Jesus does. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do everybody a favor and I'm going to take a pair of scissors and I'm going to go through the Gospel and I'm going to cut out all the good stuff, the sayings and the wisdom of Jesus. And I'm going to cut out all the weird stuff, all the stuff that Jesus says about himself being God, and all of the miracles, because those are weird, and I'm going to make like a super Bible, and this is what's going to guide us into the next century. I have tremendous respect for Thomas Jefferson, but you can see there he's fallen into that enlightenment trap, that at the end of the day, it's about me. Life is about me, and how do I become a better person? And so I'm going to pick and choose through the story to find the bits of who Jesus is and what he says that makes me a better person. I think that speaks incredibly to the way that we hold the gospel today. Because be, you need to beware of the adjectives that you attach to being a Christian. Because those adjectives may reveal the core of your worldview that merely uses Jesus Christ as a prop. Beware the adjectives. I'll give you the, the, the obvious ones. You're a conservative Christian or you're a progressive Christian. Or you're an American Christian. Or you're a Baptist Christian. Or whatever it is. The adjectives that you attach to the word Christian, you attach them as a way to qualify your core identifier. But what if perhaps it's the other way around? That when people talk about being conservative Christians or progressive Christians, they're really talking about being con Christian conservatives or pro uh, Christian progressives. And what happens when we do that, when we attach these other phrases to being a Christian is that we use the words and the teachings of Christ to prop up our worldview. That we only look for the things that already agree with how we see the world. This is a result of a gospel that's based upon my salvation being the end goal. And so all of these ideas and idols from the surrounding culture have co-opted Jesus, have tamed him, 
and they prop up non-Christian beliefs. Or we've just relegated Jesus to this place of private piety. It's just about me, and it's about my salvation. I'm going to keep my head down for the next 60 years if I'm lucky, and then I'm going to go to heaven when I die. And I want to challenge you with this. If I said that about conservative Christians or progressive Christians, and you immediately thought about the other side and said, oh, ho, ho, Uncle Jojo needs to hear this one, that means that you've got idols in your life. Because I'm not saying this to give you weapons against the other side and against those brands of Christians. I'm saying this in a way that all of us begin to repent, that we begin to lament the lack of reverence that we have for Jesus. Do you hear me? We need to repent. We need to lament that we have not taken Jesus seriously enough, that we have, we've made him small, that we've used him to prop up all of these ideas of who we think that we are and what we think the world is all about. We should be beating our chests for what we have done. We need more care in approaching Jesus as he truly is. We need more care in how we approach the Holy Scriptures. We need more care in how we treat the church if we are to truly see ourselves as faithful. Because our faith is not a collection of principles and beliefs. It is drawing close to and it is following a person. What does Jesus ask of us? He asks our worship, not our analysis. He wants us to follow him. He doesn't want us to proofread what he says and does and to nitpick whatever serves us best. The true way forward for you and I is to live in a place of continual humility and repentance. That we are called to love the sinner and to hate our own sin. Our sins of idolatry. Our sins where we've propped up a worldview as the core of who we are and we've just tacked on words of Jesus to justify ourselves. You guys are able to start to play That means that part of this task of faithfulness, of allegiance to Jesus, is sifting through all the dross, all the noise, peeling it away to come back to Jesus, the person. It's not about deconstruction. It's about restoration. But scraping away all the gunk to discover a Jesus who is compelling who is mysterious, who is incredibly attractive, who doesn't fit easily into our categories, but continues to leave us in awe. Our task of faithfulness is to pursue the unvarnished Jesus. I don't know what's happening in this country. I don't know what's happening with American Christianity or evangelical Christianity or whatever. And it's not correct to say I don't care. But if I 
use Jesus to cut down other people without first looking at myself, then I'm a hypocrite and I'm not being particularly faithful. And part of that means that I need to lament my own part in the story of not living true to it. And as we transition to worship, we're going to come to the table. We're going to take into ourselves the body and the blood of Jesus as an act of faith, as an act of allegiance. And I almost rewrote the Pledge of Allegiance and had you recite it. That's really cheesy, I'm sure. Somebody already else has done that. But we don't come to this table just seeking answers. We don't come to this table automatically because it's what everybody else is doing. We come as a centered act of embodied loyalty to genuinely pledge allegiance to Jesus as our Messiah, as our King, and to accept the reality of whatever that means. The table is radically inclusive, and it begs radical allegiance. And so we're going to take a moment, and I actually want to challenge you, if you're in a space to do this, is to get down on your knees before Jesus as an act of allegiance to Him, of submitting to Him as your King, and to take seriously this call to the table and what it really means, what you are saying when you come to Holy Communion, when you receive the gifts, what you are saying when you pledge allegiance to Jesus. So I want to invite you, if you can sit in your seats or you can, you can kneel, and let's pray. Lord Jesus, to you, all hearts are open and all desires are known and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Jesus, we repent of the times that we have used stories of you, where we have used your words to prop up our worldview, to justify our idols. We repent of our laziness, our lack of care, our lack of reverence for you and who you truly are and who you say that you are and everything that you did to inaugurate a new world, a new reality called the kingdom of God. We lament the state of our country. This public dialogue or back and forth Christians, your people, are arguing with each other, are cutting one another down to prove that we're justified and that we're right and that we have the right perspective. We are sorry that we have participated in that debate. We are sorry that we've believed it's about just having the right beliefs or interpreting scripture the right way. And we've missed the far greater and more beautiful call to intimacy with you. So, Lord Jesus, as we come to your table as an act of faith, may it be like that covenant marriage where we say, I may not know who you are, and I certainly don't know who I am half the time, but I'm willing to stick it out with you to discover it. 
that more and more, day by day, I may live a more faithful life, a more loyal life, a more embodied life, that I become the place of heaven, that I become your kingdom. So Holy Spirit, I invite you right now, whatever you want to do in the hearts and the minds of your faithful here, do it. Speak to us, for we are listening. And as we come to the table, do a work in us. All honor and glory are yours. Amen. So let's stand, let's worship. And when you feel like you're ready to make that kind of covenant commitment to Lord Jesus, I invite you to come to his holy table. Let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.